0: Can you imagine getting stolen from your life in plain view of the rest of the world, but no one can see anything out of the ordinary? In fact, the ordinary is seeing a person of your skin color shackled at the wrists and ankles. From the narrative of Solomon Northup, quote, Having been born a freeman and for more than 30 years enjoyed the blessings of liberty in a free state, and having at the end of that time been kidnapped and sold into slavery where I remained, Until happily rescued in the month of January 1853, after a bondage of 12 years, it has been suggested that an account of my life and fortunes would not be uninteresting to the public." Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougere, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows because... We all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. Solomon Northup was born in July of 1808 in Minerva, New York. His father, Mintus, was a slave owned by a man named Northup. The slaves take on their master's last name. When he died, he made provisions that all of his slaves would be freed. This episode is based entirely on the book, Twelve Years a Slave, which Solomon Northup wrote, so it is rich with his own words. He writes, Though born a slave and laboring under the disadvantages to which my unfortunate race is subjected, My father was a man respected for his industry and integrity, Solomon and his brother Joseph were born as free men. Solomon worked with his father on a farm growing up and also found he was capable of many tasks he enjoyed. He was educated and discovered a love for music. He loved playing the violin. Part of his education was his father reminding him of the life he lived and how to be grateful, live a good life, and be a good person. He was reminded to love others as was taught in the scripture and no matter what is happening to put your faith in the hands of the father who, quote, regards the humblest as well as the highest of his creatures, end quote. But even though they were free, Mintus Northup never wanted his sons to forget the way his life used to be since his birth, quote, he was accustomed to speak to us of his early life, and, although at all times cherishing the warmest emotions of kindness and even of affection towards the family in whose house he had become a bondsman, he nevertheless comprehended the system of slavery and dwelt with sorrow on the degradation of his race." End quote. In 1829, on Christmas Day, he married his sweetheart, Anne Hampton. They worked odd jobs, and Solomon worked on farms, and soon they had a family and a little piece of property they could call home. Two daughters and a son, Elizabeth, Margaret, and Alonzo. Quote, with one cow, one swine, a yoke of fine oxen, and other personal property and effects, we proceeded to our new home in Kingsbury. That year, I planted 25 acres of corn, sowed large fields of oats and commenced farming upon a large scale as my utmost means would permit and was diligent about the house affairs while i toiled laboriously in the field End quote. they earned a tidy sum and were soon able to move to saratoga springs in 1834 quote, with fiddling cooking and farming we soon found ourselves in the possession of abundance and in fact leading a happy and prosperous life from the time of my marriage to this day the love I have borne for my wife has been sincere and unabated, and only those who have felt the glowing tenderness a father cherishes for his offspring can appreciate my affection for the beloved children which have since been born to us. Anne discovered she had a passion and a skill for cooking and was sought after in several places. One of her favourite was for Cheryl's Coffee House, where she was quote, hired at high wages." In the meantime, Solomon was making good money with his side hustle of playing his violin. He became well known in the neighborhood and beyond, and found himself quite busy through referrals. Which would be how we begin our tragic tale. In March of 1841, Solomon was out looking for additional work playing the violin. At this time, it was considered a busy season, and people were having parties, So both Anne and Solomon, both in the entertainment business, anticipated being busy. Anne's cooking job would take her away for a few days at a time. She would usually take the oldest child, Elizabeth, with her, and Margaret and Alonzo would stay with their aunt. On this particular morning, Solomon was greeted by two respectable-looking gentlemen that he hadn't met before. They immediately made their introductions and explained that they were sent by a common acquaintance to seek him out for his unprecedented fiddle-playing skills. They introduced themselves as a Mr. Hamilton and a Mr. Brown. He writes, quote, They were connected, as they informed me, with a circus company, then in the city of Washington. They were on their way thither to rejoin it. They remarked that they had found much difficulty in procuring music for their entertainments and that if I would accompany them as far as New York, they would give me $1 for each day's services and $3 in addition for every night I played at their performances, besides sufficient to pay the expenses of my return from New York to Saratoga. End quote. Thither. I just love words. He accepted the offer, as it was very generous, and he admitted that he was curious to see the big city of New York. The gentlemen said they had no time to waste, allowing him only to grab a change of clothes and his instrument. They encouraged Solomon to go with them directly. Quote, Thinking my absence would be brief, I did not deem it necessary to write Anne whither I had gone. In fact, supposing that my return, perhaps, would be as soon as hers. I drove away from Saratoga on the road to Albany, elated with my new position, and happy as I had ever been, on any day in all my life, They traveled to New York without incident, and Solomon was enjoying the company of his new friends. When they arrived in New York, they told Solomon they had received word that the circus they were working with had to continue to Washington, and instructed them to bring the fiddle player, expenses paid, of course. This was promising to be more money than he had ever made, and he decided to go along, trusting the two men implicitly. Since they were crossing into a slave state from a free state, the gentleman suggested Solomon should acquire free papers. These, applied for at the Custom House, would assure his safety, and in case others assumed he was a slave, these papers would establish his free status. Quote, the idea struck me as a prudent one though i think it would scarcely have occurred to me had they not proposed it," end quote. Solomon explained, quote, "some formalities were gone through before it was completed. When paying the officer 2 dollars i placed the papers in my pocket and started with my two friends to our hotel. I thought at the time i must confess that the papers were scarcely worth the cost of obtaining them." The apprehension of danger to my personal safety never having suggested itself to me in the remotest manner." End quote. Up until this point, Hamilton and Brown were paying for all of the expenses, the travel, his food, their hotel accommodations. Over dinner at the hotel in Washington, they paid him $43. This was more than the agreed upon amount. They cautioned him not to go out after dark since the city of Washington could be unsafe to those who don't know their way around. I think, at this point, they were sure that Solomon Northup, with a huge sum of cash in his pocket, would be sure to break the rules. But he did not. He heeded his friend's advice and went to his room, which was on the lower level of the hotel, in the back. Quote, I laid down to rest, thinking of home and wife and children and the long distance that stretched between us until I fell asleep. But no good angel of pity came to my bedside bidding me to fly. No voice of mercy forewarned me in my dreams of the trials that were just at hand, The next day, the three went out to see the sights of Washington. Hamilton and Brown proved to be excellent hosts, taking them to see the Capitol and the White House, walking the grounds of the parks and strolling up and down the streets, looking at the various homes and shops. They had not yet met up with the circus, but were having such a good time, Solomon caught up in the excitement of the adventure, gave no thought to any danger. Quote, I gave them my confidence without reserve, and would freely have trusted them to almost any extent. Their constant conversation and manner towards me, their foresight in suggesting the idea of free papers, and a hundred other little acts, unnecessary to be repeated, all indicated that they were friends indeed. "'sincerely solicitous for my welfare,' end quote. Throughout the day, the three men would slip into drinking saloons, and his friends would pour him a glass, and even though it might not be his normal behavior, he would accept. But he would say, quote, "'I did not become intoxicated, as many inferred from what subsequently occurred,' end quote. At some point, or perhaps along the way, the drinks presented to Solomon had begun to be laced with a toxic poison. By the time the men had gone back to their hotel for dinner, Solomon was too nauseous to eat. His head was spinning and his mouth was dry. His friends encouraged him to turn in early and hopefully sleep it off. Quote, Brown and Hamilton advised me to retire, commiserating me kindly and expressing hopes that I would be better in the morning. Divesting myself of coat and boots merely, I threw myself upon the bed. It was impossible to sleep. The pain in my head continued to increase until it became almost unbearable." Some hours later he recalled that men came into his room but couldn't be sure if they were Hamilton and Brown. I only remember with any degree of distinctness that I was told it was necessary to go to a physician and procure medicine and that pulling on my boots without coat or hat I followed them through a long passageway or alley into the open street." Not being from the area, and also being drugged, he had no idea which direction he was heading, but was promised relief at its end. He remembers half walking, half being dragged toward a bright light. It would be the last thing he remembers seeing. Quote, How long I remained in that condition, whether only that night or many days and nights, I do not know. But when consciousness returned, I found myself alone in utter darkness and in chains. End quote. Hello, everyone. It's time for a Bag of Bones sponsor break. And this one highlights Lumi Deodorant. But today, we are not talking about their amazing deodorant products. If you didn't know already, Lumi also creates body wash. Makes sense, right? And you'll be happy to know that the same care that goes into the deodorant carries over to the body wash line as well. Lumi's acidified body wash is clinically proven to work three times better than ordinary soap. Lumi has a low pH, making it perfect for sensitive skin, and it eliminates odor in all the places, promoting healthier, softer skin. If you haven't already tried the body wash, consider using the Bag of Bones link in the show notes to give it a try. It has a money-back guarantee and free shipping with any order of $25 or more. Plus, you help support an awesome podcast. Hint, hint. If you know you stink or you take showers regularly, this product is for you. Give it a try today. Click the link in the show notes. Quote, there was a blank of some indefinite period preceding my awakening in that lonely place, the events of which the utmost stretch of memory was unable to recall. I listened intently for some sign or sound of life, but nothing broke the oppressive silence Save the clinking of my chains whenever I chanced to move." End quote. When Solomon came to consciousness, his head was still spinning and he didn't know where he was. He was alone in a twelve foot square room sitting on a low bench. He had cuffs around each wrist connected to each other by heavy chain links and his ankles were also bound to each other and went through a heavy ring bolted to the floor. He was weak from the night before, or however long it had been, and he did not recognize his surroundings. There was no sight of his friends, Brown and Hamilton. I felt of my pockets, so far as the fetters would allow, far enough indeed to ascertain that I had not only been robbed of liberty, but that my money and free papers were also gone. Then did the idea begin to break upon my mind, at first dim and confused, that I had been kidnapped. But that, I thought was incredible. There must have been some misapprehension, some unfortunate mistake. It could not be that a free citizen of New York who had wronged no man nor violated any law should be dealt with this inhumanely. The more I contemplated my situation, however, the more I became confirmed in my suspicions. It was a desolate thought indeed. I, commending myself to the God of the oppressed, bowed my head upon my fettered hands and wept most bitterly." After being left alone for some hours, he had no idea if it was day or night. The heavy door to his cell opened. It brought with it three men, but also a splash of light that filled the room. He could see that to his left there were bars and a door that created another cell. One of the men opened a small square window which allowed light and fresh air into the dank, heavy, planked room. The planks had gaps between each one, and the smell of earth and sweat stayed trapped in the small space. Theophilus Freeman introduced himself, saying that he would soon be taking the man to New Orleans to be sold, acknowledging the man beside him as James H. Birch, being the one who purchased him just the other night. Solomon replied, I asserted aloud and boldly that I was a free man, a resident of Saratoga where I had a wife and children who were also free, and that my name was Northup. I complained bitterly of the strange treatment I had received and threatened upon my liberation to have satisfaction for the wrong, End quote. Attempting once more, Freeman said again that Solomon now belonged to Birch after being purchased, and again that he would be moved to New Orleans to be sold again. Solomon again professed his freedom, explaining that he was not a slave, never has been a slave. With that, before Solomon even had a chance to react, His captors grabbed him and tore his clothing from his body. They forced him to hunch over the low stool, which Birch placing his heavy foot on the connecting chains of the handcuffs, keeping Solomon's head close to the floor. This next part becomes a bit graphic, so if you need to hit the skip button a couple times, you can safely get past it. Birch produced a paddle, which looked similar to an oar about 18 inches long, with holes drilled through it. Using his right hand, Birch would bring the paddle down with full force so much so you could hear the air whistle through the small holes. He was struck with the paddle several times on his tender, naked skin. When asked if he was a free man, Solomon answered that he was. Another round of paddling was brought about his bare back, but to up the stakes, another employee was instructed to use a cat-o'-nine-tails in addition to the paddle. This tool is a form of whip. It has a wooden handle at the base and a length of leather straps that extend from the hand. Each strand has been left unwoven at the end. At each end of each strand, a small knot is tied. Some would go so far as to tie hooks, others metal or glass shards to inflict more pain. After a time of the dual treatment, the men would stop and ask again if he still believed that he was a free man. And when he replied again with his name, and that he had always been a free man, they came at him again with the lashes. Quote, all his brutal blows could not force from my lips the foul lie that I was a slave. End quote. After several more repeated rounds of these beatings, keep in mind this was a process that took up several hours. And finally, still not able to speak the words they wanted to hear, the captive chose not to answer at all. At one point the paddle broke and Birch replaced it with a rope, which Solomon recalled stung even worse than the other tool. His back and legs now flayed and raw, Theophilus Freeman called for the beatings to stop, saying it was useless to beat him any more. Birch, however, lashed a few more times for good measure and bent down low for the man to hear that if he ever even whispered that he had been kidnapped or was at one time a free man, Birch would find him and either break him or kill him but he made sure that the man that lay before him bleeding out on a thick wood plank floor had experienced nothing as to what could happen after the two men left the room it was common for a salt water wash to be splashed on the victim where he would be left alone to think on his plight Quote, "i could not reconcile myself to the idea that brown and hamilton were instrumental to my imprisonment surely they would seek me out they would deliver me from thraldom" His wounds would begin to blister and stretch with every movement, but to him, staying in one position hurt even more. So, despite the pain, he attempted to move into different positions. His hands and legs, now unbound, he slept face down on the cold floor with no blanket or creature comfort of any kind. Twice a day he was brought food, but could not eat. He was brought water, but it could not quench his thirst. His only hope was to sleep. But even his dreams pained him. Quote, Thoughts of my family, of my wife and children, continually occupied my mind. When sleep overpowered me, I dreamed of them. Dreamed I was again in Saratoga, that I could see their faces and hear their voices calling me. Awakening from the pleasant phantasms of sleep to the bitter realities around me, I could but groan and weep. End quote. In a matter of days, Solomon was brought to the fresh air and deposited into a high-fenced yard. On one side, it had a lean-to. On the other side, it was attached to a two-story building. From the outside world and the bustling streets of Washington, the passers-by would have no indication of what hateful acts were being carried out behind the facade of a quiet place of business. There were two small buildings that were used for slave buyers to take the merchandise behind closed doors in order to strip them down to make sure they were healthy. The fences were thick and tall and shut out any opportunity for peering eyes, but on the other side, the top of the Capitol building could easily be seen by all who were trapped there. the voices of the patriotic representatives boasting of freedom and equality and the rattling of the poor slaves' chains almost commingled a slave pen within the very shadow of the capital, Solomon was allowed to walk about in the fresh air and talk with others who were kept there. Then in the evenings he was returned to the cellar and chained. He would talk with the others and learn of their stories and histories, and would discover that all had spent their entire lives in some kind of bondage of varying degrees. Solomon kept his history to himself, the lash marks on his back only just beginning to crust over. After a few weeks and long after the sun had set, he would be chained and attached to both side by side and front to back to about fifty others bound for the same destination. Men, women, and children were walked through the sleeping city to the steamboat, the first of their many forms of transportation taking them to the slave market of New Orleans. Quote, "'So we passed, handcuffed and in silence,' "...through the streets of Washington, through the capital of a nation whose theory of government, we are told, rests on the foundation of man's inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness." When they arrived, they were allowed to bathe and shave and put on a clean outfit of clothes provided for them. Theophilus Freeman was pleased with this lot and anticipated making a good deal of money. The men and women were coached as to how to behave during the sale. They were to step lively and appear smart. He would make us hold up our heads, walk briskly back and forth, while customers would feel our hands and arms and bodies, turn us around, ask us what we could do, make us open our mouths and show our teeth, precisely as a jockey examines a horse which he is about to barter for or purchase. Sometimes a man or woman, it was taken to a small house in the yard, stripped and inspected more minutely. Scars upon a slave's back were considered evidence of a rebellious or unruly spirit and hurt his sale. Solomon Northup was now known as Platt Hamilton. Quote, now I had approached within the shadow of the cloud into the thick darkness, whereof I would soon disappear. Thenceforward to be hidden from the eyes of all of my kindred and shut out from the sweet light of liberty for many a weary year." Before the end of the day, Solomon and others were sold to a Baptist preacher named William Ford. He had a plantation called the Great Pine Woods along the banks of the Red River in Louisiana. He is accounted by his fellow citizens as a worthy minister of God. In many northern minds, perhaps, the idea of a man holding his brother man in servitude and the traffic in human flesh may seem altogether incompatible with their conceptions of a moral or religious life. The influences and associations that had always surrounded him blinded him to the inherent wrong at the bottom of the system of slavery. He never doubted the moral right of one man holding another in subjection. Looking through the same medium with his fathers before him, he saw things in the same light. Brought up in other circumstances and other influences, his notions would undoubtedly be different. Nevertheless, he was a model master, walking uprightly according to the light of his understanding, and fortunate was the slave who came into his possession." Even though his new master was benevolent and kind, Solomon was afraid to even whisper of his journey for fear that he would be taken away to even darker depths, so the secret was never revealed. Solomon, now known only as Platt, settled in as much as could be expected, and the slaves already at his new home made him feel welcome and assured him that Master and Madam Ford were good and kind people. Ford ran a lumber establishment, and Solomon was put to work piling lumber and chopping logs, and running loads by water to the mill. He spent the Sabbath surrounded by all the servants of the field, the pines, and the household, as the master would preach and pray the word of God. His methods were mocked by others who believed he indulged his slaves too much, but as Solomon saw it, the kindness he showed to the people under his care was not a deterrent, but a multiplier. He'd say, quote, he lost nothing by his kindness. It is a fact I have more than once observed that those who treated their slaves more leniently were rewarded by the greatest amount of labor. I know it from my own experience. It was a source of pleasure to surprise Master Ford with a greater day's work than was required, while under subsequent masters there was no prompter to extra effort but the overseer's lash." End quote. Quote, During my residence with Master Ford, I had seen only the bright side of slavery. His was no heavy hand crushing us to the earth. He pointed upwards, and with benign and cheering words addressed us as his fellow mortals, accountable like himself to the maker of us all. I think of him with affection, and had my family been with me, could have borne his gentle servitude without murmuring all of my days. But clouds were gathering in the horizon." Thanks to the brother of William Ford and to his offering to be a co-signer of sorts, Ford found himself indebted to many for his brother's creditors for inaction of paying his bills. Ford was forced to either sell or sign over 17 of his slaves to settle his brother's debts. Our Solomon was mortgaged away to John M. Beats in the winter of 1842 for the price of $400, according to the contract to beat now least solomon for the rest of his life all of his days all of his nights all of his labor all of his leisure valued at only 400 dollars as solomon was being led away on foot to his new master's home he would consider himself fortunate and could only pray for one as noble quote, "in my opinion there never was a more kind noble candid christian man than william ford" End quote. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougere with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly, is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. So again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a 5-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you. This new working environment Solomon found himself in was a stark contrast from his former employer. Tibeats was a foul tempered man and complained incessantly. He spoke harshly to his workers and offered them little rest. They were up at dawn and were not returned to their small cabins until long after the sun went down. Quote, I was his faithful slave. And earned him large wages every day, and yet I went to my cabin nightly loaded with abuse and stinging epithets." On a fateful day, when Tebez was in a particularly foul mood, Solomon was working on a task he was assigned when his master came out to observe it and determined to find fault. Not giving any reason for his dissatisfaction, he retrieved a whip and angrily came at Solomon. Even as Solomon watched, perhaps in slow motion, the movements of his pompous, disagreeable white slave owner, he knew that he was about to be whipped for no reason. Not that there was ever any good reason, but just in the moments prior to the whip making contact, he decided, regardless of the consequences, that he would not be whipped that day. In a flash of reflex, he stopped the hand holding the whip. Within moments, he was able to contort the man's body to where he was unable to move or escape Solomon's hold over him. For additional assuredness, he applied pressure on Tabitz's throat with his boot. Rage and fury overwhelmed him for all of the sins that were placed on him. Tabitz was going to feel every last one. He brought the whip down time and time again, ignoring his cries of pain, his threats of revenge, and finally his pleading with God. He wrote, And at last the blasphemous tyrant called on God for mercy, but he who has never shown mercy did not receive. He did not let up until his arm ached and with a final kick released his master. When he looked up, he saw the faces of horrified field slaves and the owners of a neighboring plantation. What could I do? What could I say to justify in the remotest manner the heinous act I had committed? When Tabeach returned, he was accompanied by two men and rope. As Solomon cried into his hands, the men bound his wrists, ankles, and secured his arms with another rope around his chest. The final piece was made into a noose and placed around his neck. The rest of the slaves paused from their work and looked on in silent nervousness. It was William Ford's overseer, Chapin, that came to his rescue. With a gun in each hand, he threatened that if any man made another move, toward the bound slave, it would be their last. His life was saved on that day, but an enemy was made. As long as Chapin, the overseer, was present, Solomon knew he was safe. Since Tobites was only leasing Solomon, Ford technically still owned him, and should harm come to him, Tobites would end up having to pay Ford for the damages. He could abuse his slave, starve him, beat him, but if he wound up dead, it would be considered damaging the property of Ford, leaving him with a deficit. Chapin was essentially Ford's overseer, but happened to be working in the property next to where Tibets had leased. Chapin couldn't be there all the time, and Tibets, like the snake that he was, waited. All too soon came the day that the two faced off again. Tibets, when the opportunity arose, attacked Solomon with an axe threatening to remove his head from his body. Since the last incident, vowing to be a good slave, Solomon had resigned to swallowing any form of abuse from his master other than bodily harm. If Solomon did not move, he had no doubts that Tabeets would plunge the axe into his head. Solomon was able to wrestle the axe from the hateful man and, after a short tussle, was able to render Tabeets unconscious. Knowing that he had no one in his corner, he felt his only option was to run. He ran deep into the bayous of Louisiana and not long after heard the dogs baying a warning that they were in pursuit. Solomon would have to brave every natural fear in order to save his life, and he did. He crossed the shallow swamps with tall trees blocking out the light. He could hear the alligators slipping into the water and see the snakes scatter as his bare feet came down on the logs they rested on. For some reason, he was able to lose the dogs by wading up to his neck into the salty, murky waters of the bayou. Realizing that he had no place to go, being scraped and bruised and raw, he retreated back to Ford's plantation. According to law, Ford was required to eventually return him to Tobeets, but not before he was rested and healed. Solomon was allowed to tell Ford of what led to his near-death escape and, upon being returned, Ford, under a thinly veiled threat, advised that Tibeats sublease out the slave Platt, since he was not able to work peaceably with him. He would, in a short amount of time, taking Ford's advice to the next level, he decided to sell him to Edwin Epps. Solomon explains about his new master, When in his cups, meaning when he was drunk, Master Epps was a roistering, blustering, noisy fellow whose chief delight was in dancing with his slaves, or lashing them about the yard with his long whip just for the pleasure of hearing them screech and scream as the great welts were planted on their back. When sober, he was silent, reserved, and cunning, not beating us indiscriminately as in his drunken moments, but sending the end of his rawhide to some tender spot of a lagging slave with a sly dexterity peculiar to himself, Epps ran a cotton plantation, and then in the off-month planted corn and sweet potatoes. His main source of income, though, was through cotton. A cotton crop is planted in long rows, and the slaves would be required to pick by hand the balls that puffed up and out of the hull. It would be placed in their sack, careful not to allow any to fall on the ground, and so they would go down each row. The cotton that was not burst open yet was left for the next day. A glimpse of the working of a cotton field under the command of Epps, Solomon wrote, The hands are required to be in the cotton field as soon as it is light in the morning, and with the exception of 10 or 15 minutes, which is given them at noon to swallow their allowance of cold bacon. They are not permitted to be a moment idle until it is too dark to see, and when the moon is full, they oftentimes labor till the middle of the night. They do not dare to stop even at dinner time, nor return to the quarters, however late it be until the order to halt is given by the driver." And so they would repeat day in and day out, sun up to well past sundown, for several months during the cotton season. Each person had to turn in what they picked, and if it was below the standard, they were punished. And by punished, I mean lashed with a long leather whip. Quote, It is the literal, unvarnished truth that the crack of the lash and the shrieking of slaves can be heard from dark till bedtime on Epps plantation any day almost during the entire period of the cotton picking season." He would share a meager living space with three others and was only given a blanket to call his own. He was allotted X amount of bacon per month, and that wasn't guaranteed to be worm free, by the way and they were allowed to ground their own corn either by the week or by the month. So their meals consisted of bacon and a thick cornbread roasted over an open fire, since they had no cookware, and toasted corn coffee. They would hollow out gourds and use them for storage of every kind, and this would be their only source of water while out in the field. If they forgot to bring their gourd full of water, they would go without. This would become his life for the next ten years. He would lay in bed recalling the stories his father would tell him in his youth, quote, How often since that time has the recollection of his paternal counsels occurred to me while laying in a slave hut in the distant and sickly regions of Louisiana, smarting with undeserved wounds which an inhuman master had inflicted, and longing only for the grave which had covered him to shield me also from the lash of the oppressor, End quote. Many of his thoughts would be taken up with opportunities of escape, Under a great danger to himself, he dared not even trust his friends who worked beside him day in and day out of his true history. He was Platt. He told them he came from Washington, so as not to lie. He admitted to having a family, but did not offer much information. He hated to be deceitful, but he really and truly could not trust anyone. He knew that if he was going to make his escape one day, he would need money. Here, on this plantation, he was allowed to keep Sunday money. When a slave was hired out to other plantations, or if they had a special skill, they could be allowed to be hired out and keep a, all or a portion of the wages they earned. Solomon's key to extra income was his violin. Luckily, the mistress Epps was fond of music and would call on Solomon to entertain her, and he would play at all of their gatherings, and soon requests for his talents would come from neighbors all around Bayou Boeuf. I was indebted to my violin, my constant companion, the source of profit, and soother of my sorrows during years of servitude. My master often received letters, sometimes from a distance of ten miles, requesting him to send me to play at a ball or festival of the whites, End quote. And while his violin gigs are able to distract him momentarily, he is always on the alert for the opportunity to follow through on escape. One such time finally presented itself. Upon arriving to the Epps Plantation, his new owner asked if he was able to read. Solomon answered somewhat honestly when he said, a little. He was soundly threatened and needlessly lashed in order to demonstrate of what would happen ten times worse if he was ever caught with a book, not even the Bible, or practicing any writing or reading of any kind. Another secret to keep. But short of walking to the north, he was going to have to use another means. Quote, my great object always was to invent means of getting a letter secretly into the post office directed to some of my friends or family at the North. The difficulty of such an achievement cannot be comprehended by one unacquainted with the severe restrictions imposed on me. In the first place, I was deprived of pen, ink, and paper. In the second place, a slave cannot leave his plantation without a pass, nor will a postmaster mail a letter for one without written instructions from his owner. End quote. Finally, after being sent to the store for just such a thing for the mistress of the house, he dared to abscond with one sheet of precious paper quote, after various experiments, I succeeded in making ink by boiling white maple bark and with a feather plucked from a wing of a duck, manufactured a pen. When all were asleep in the cabin, by the light of the coals laying upon my plank couch, I managed to complete a somewhat lengthy epistle. It was directed to an old acquaintance at Sandy Hill stating my condition and urging him to take measures to restore me to liberty. This letter I kept a long time, contriving measures by which it could be safely deposited in the post office. He finally worked up the nerve to approach a white man that was down on his luck working at a neighboring plantation. He crept over to him in the middle of the night and offered to pay the only money he had if he would only take the letter to the post. He said that he would and instructed the slave to go home and write it. The next day, Solomon's secret was betrayed, and against everything he believed in, when questioned, Solomon lied to his master Epps, knowing that if he failed in his falsehood, it would mean 500 lashes and be turned out to the dogs. Epps believed him, having nine years of history, to prove that he had been a good and faithful and honest servant. The white man was sent away and threatened never to return. In fear, Solomon tossed his precious letter into the fire. Hopes sprang up in my heart only to be crushed and blighted. End quote. And in our darkest hours, if we faint not, a light will shine through offering us direction. At this point in our story, the light has a name. His name is Mr. Bass. Quote, Ten years I toiled for that man without reward. Ten years of my incessant labor has contributed to the increase of bulk of his possessions. Ten years I was compelled to address him with downcast eyes and uncovered head, in the attitude and language of a slave. I am indebted to him for nothing save undeserved abuse and stripes." In the summer months of June 1852, Epps would hire a carpenter. This carpenter was different. He called no place home, traveled wherever he found he was called to, and stayed as long as he deemed necessary. He had no one to answer to but himself, and had very distinctive views on things and didn't mind sharing them whenever the opportunity arose. On one particular afternoon, Solomon happened to hear a conversation between Epps and Bass as he labored alongside the man. The topic was slavery. Solomon listened intently as Bass debunked the idea of whites being supreme of blacks, pointing out several men with dark skin that he considered at times more intelligent and more skilled than he. Epps merely laughed off his theories. Their conversation continued, but when Epps heard enough, saying, quote, you like to hear yourself talk, Bass, end quote, he asked him pointedly, quote, let me ask you a question. Are all men created free and equal as the Declaration of Independence holds they are? Epps laughed and replied, quote, Yes, all men, niggers and monkeys, ain't, end quote. Their conversations continued along this vein for most of the summer when Bass would come every other week to work on Epps' new building. With every conversation Solomon overheard, he believed this man could possibly be his ally. The opportunity came where the two, Bass and Solomon, would be alone, and the latter started up a conversation about places that he's been. Curious, wondering how a slave could have been all the places that he mentioned, their conversation finally got down to the truth. Quote, I began a relation of the history of my life and misfortunes. He was deeply interested, asking numerous questions in reference to localities and events. Having ended my story, I besought him to write to some of my friends at the North, acquainting them with my situation, and begging them to forward free papers, or take such steps as it might consider proper to secure my release. He promised to do so, but dwelt upon the danger of such an act in case of detection, and now impressed upon me the great necessity of strict silence and secrecy. Before we parted, our plan of operation was arranged." They would meet several times under the cover and stillness of night. Bass would bring along paper to jot down names. He assured me earnestly he would keep every word I might speak to him a profound secret. When he had all the information necessary, he promised to let Solomon know when he had any news. I caught him by the hand and with tears of passionate entreaties implored him to befriend me, to restore me to my kindred and to liberty promising I would weary heaven the remainder of my life with prayers that it would bless and prosper him end quote. he sent several letters to saratoga springs and waited for weeks and weeks with no reply quote, finally my master's house was finished and the time came when bass must leave the night before his departure i was wholly given up to despair i had clung to him as a drowning man clings to the floating spar Knowing if it shifts from his grasp, he must forever sink beneath the waves. The all-glorious hope upon which I had laid such eager hold was crumbling to ashes in my hands. I felt as if I was sinking down, down amidst the bitter waters of slavery, from the unfathomable depths of which I should never rise again." Little did he know, at the time, the letters were received and were also forwarded to his wife Anne one of which was postdated August 15th from Marksville, Louisiana and took to their friend Henry Northup, who was the brother of Mintus Northup's former master. Henry Northup was a lawyer and took interest in Anne's plight. Prior to the letters, there had been small glimpses of hope throughout the dozens of years Solomon was missing. At some point even before Solomon was sold, a slave that was with him in the slave market pen in Washington was able to escape And small world that it is, he happened to spend one night in the house of his brother-in-law on his way to Canada and was able to tell the family of his condition. On May fourteenth, eighteen forty, a law was passed to protect the free citizens from being kidnapped and or reduced to slavery. It would say that if satisfactory evidence is provided that the person in question is a free citizen and is held wrongfully, may use whatever means necessary to restore his liberty. And to, quote, To that end, he is authorized to appoint and employ an agent and will be directed to furnish him with such credentials and instructions as will be likely to accomplish the object of his appointment, end quote. And on the 23rd day of November, 1852, under the seal of the state, quote, "...constituted, appointed, and employed Henry B. Northup Esquire, an agent with full power to effect my restoration and to take such measures as would be most likely to accomplish it, and instructing him to proceed to Louisiana with all convenient dispatch." Henry Northup was unable to get away from his work until December but at his first available moment made his way to Washington to secure the necessary paperwork that would insist upon the reader, in a quote-unquote most forcible language, that it would be in their best interest to restore Solomon Northup's freedom. Henry Northup had no idea where Solomon was hidden in the many plantations of the South, but since the original letter was postmarked from Marksville, he decided to begin there. Another deterrent was his name. No one knew of a Solomon Northup, and how could they? He was known only as Platt Epps in that area. A slave's name changes, as their ownership does. He may have started out as a slave by the name of Platt Hamilton, but it changed several times before becoming Platt Epps for the last ten years. A plan was made. Northup, with the assistance of a Mr. Waddill, would comb each plantation and inquire each of the owners if they knew the whereabouts of Solomon Northup. Which, of course, they wouldn't. Even Epps himself could answer quite honestly that he'd never heard the name before. But it's funny how life can intervene. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt, but do you know that the Ragtag Network has its own merch? You can get merch for your favorite shows such as Bag of Bones, Save Me an Isle Seat, or Total Tomfoolery. Just visit www.ragtagnetwork.com slash merch now to check things out. Henry Northup and Mr. Wadill talked late into the evening about the changing politics of the North and South. Waddell asked about the effects of abolitionists in the northern states and how he had only met one person who spoke of those beliefs. He would say, quote, we have one here in Marksville, an eccentric creature who preaches abolitionism as vehemently as any fanatic at the North. He is a generous, inoffensive man, but always maintaining the wrong side of an argument. It affords us a good deal of amusement. He is an excellent mechanic and almost indispensable in his community. He is a carpenter. His name is Bass. End quote. As they continued their light conversation, Waddill suddenly realized the connection. It was Bass. Bass could lead them directly to Solomon Northup. He was sure of it. The search began to find Bass. He was found merely hours away from leaving the bayou area. A little apprehensive when the man asked about his participation in any letter writing, but after their clarification, he admitted gladly to be the author of the letters. He was happy to inform them that he saw Solomon only a week prior to that day and that he was a slave of Edwin Epps, and that he is called Platt. The men and the sheriff headed out toward Epps Plantation, just after midnight, making sure all of the paperwork was in order. Upon arriving at the cotton fields, the sheriff brazenly walked up to the first row of slaves, and asked that the slave Platt to be pointed out. The sheriff asked if he recognized the gentleman accompanying him, and after a few moments, Solomon smiled with tears rolling down his cheeks and shouted the name of his old friend, Henry B. Northup. The sheriff asked a few more qualifying questions to make sure they were freeing the right person, and he answered as many as he could until emotion overwhelmed him and he moved past the officer to shake the hand of his friend. The slaves, utterly confounded, stood gazing upon the scene, their mouths open and rolling eyes indicating the utmost wonder and astonishment. For ten years I had dwelt among them, in the field and in the cabin, borne the same hardships, partaken the same fare, mingled my griefs with theirs, participated in the same scantly joys, nevertheless, not until this hour, the last I was to remain among them, had the remotest suspicion of my true name, or the slightest knowledge of my real history, had been entertained by any one of them. End quote. Quote, Not a word was spoken for several minutes during the time I clung fast to Northup, looking up into his face, fearful I should awake and find it all a dream, On January 4th, 1853, in a small room of Marksville, Louisiana, Solomon Northup, known as Platt for the last decade of his life, was interrogated as to the events that brought them there that day. Epps had hired a counselor, and Henry Northup served as Solomon's, and after the questions and paperwork in place, all parties decided that a trial would be unnecessary. Epps acknowledged his right to return to freedom and formally surrendered him to the authorities of New York. Immediately following, the Northup men boarded a steamer and left the South as quickly as they could. On January eighteenth, eighteen 1853, the New York Times would print, quote, Mr H B Northup who was commissioned by Governor Hunt to recover a free colored man who was kidnapped from this state has arrived at Washington with the negro. The man was found after diligent search in the Red River country on the outskirts of civilization and he is reported to be delighted with his freedom once more." End quote. Solomon would write quote, To speak truthfully of Edwin Epps would be to say he is a man in whose heart the quality of kindness or of justice is not found. A rough, rude energy, united with an uncultivated mind and an avaricious spirit, are in his prominent characteristics. He is known as a nigger-breaker. Distinguished for his faculty of subduing the spirit of the slave and priding himself upon his reputation in this respect, He looked upon a colored man, not as a human being responsible to his creator for the small talent entrusted to him, but as mere live property, no better except in value than his mule or dog. With the evidence, clear and indisputable, was laid before him that I was a free man and as much entitled to my liberty as he, when on the day I left he was informed that I had a wife and children as dear to me as his own babes to him. He only raved and swore, denouncing the law that tore me from him, and declaring he would find out the man who had forwarded the letter that disclosed the place of my captivity, if there were any virtue or power in money, and would take his life. He thought of nothing but his loss, and cursed me for having been born free. He could have stood unmoved and seen the tongues of his poor slaves torn out by the roots. He could have seen them burned to ashes over a slow fire or gnawed to death by dogs, if it only brought him profit. Such a hard, cruel, unjust man is Edwin Epps." On the 22nd of January, 1853, Solomon Northup was reunited with his family. As I entered their comfortable cottage, Margaret was the first that I met. She did not recognize me. When I left her, she was but seven years old, a little, prattling girl playing with her toys. Now she was grown to womanhood, was married with a bright-eyed boy standing beside her. Not forgetful of his enslaved unfortunate grandfather, she had named the child Solomon Northup Staunton. When told who I was, she was overcome with emotion and unable to speak. Presently, Elizabeth entered the room, and Anne came running from the hotel, having been informed of my arrival. They embraced me, and with tears flowing down their cheeks, hung upon my neck but I draw a veil over the scene which can be better imagined than described. Alonzo was absent in the western part of the state. The boy had written to his mother a short time previous of the prospect of his obtaining sufficient money to purchase my freedom. From his earliest years that had been the chief object of his thoughts and his ambition, they knew I was in bondage. There was one to whom I owe immeasurable debt of gratitude. Only for him, in all probability, I should have ended my days in slavery. He was my deliverer, a man of true heart, overflowed with noble and generous emotions. To the last moment of my existence, I shall remember him with feelings of thankfulness. His name was Bass." In the very same year after returning home to his family, Solomon Northup penned the book Twelve Years a Slave, honestly relating the story of his last twelve years and gave an honest look behind the veil of slavery. Quote, There may be humane masters, as there certainly are inhumane ones. There may be slaves well-clothed, well-fed, and happy, as there are surely those half-clad, half-starved, and miserable. Nevertheless, the institution that tolerates such wrong and inhumanity as I have witnessed is a cruel, unjust, and barbarous one. End quote. His narration was used to help support and escalate the abolitionists movement, and he would travel and speak on the matter for many years. It is also said that he served as a stop on the Underground Railroad. It should be mentioned that on his journey back from Louisiana to his family, He and lawyer Henry Northup stopped back in Washington to press criminal charges against James Birch for his kidnapping. The case did go to trial, but Birch was released back into society without punishment. Birch attempted a countersuit against Solomon for defamation, but later changed his mind. The New York Times reported on January 19, 1853, quote, James H. Birch of this city was arrested today showed that the accused had had the kidnapped man in his possession at the Negro pen and sold him to go to New Orleans. The man says he was drugged at night and carried into the pen and was whipped severely when, on awakening, he attempted to assert his freedom. Birch brings a slave trader to prove that he, Birch, bought the Negro man of some man whom he did not know. The bill of sale was not produced by the defendant although he brought out his bill book for the year in question. After hearing the testimony, the justice decided that the evidence of the slave trader upset the testimony of the complainant and refused to hold the accused to answer. Birch then got out a warrant against the Negro, whose name is Solomon Northup, charging him with conspiracy to defraud by bargaining with white men to sell him and divide the proceeds, Mr. H. B. Northup appeared in court and declared his readiness to defend the negro, but the complainant withdraw his charge. End quote. James H. Birch and Company in Alexandria, Virginia, becoming the largest slave pen in America at the time. Quote, Let not those who have never been placed in like circumstances judge me harshly. Until they have been chained and beaten, until they find themselves in the situation I was, born away from home and family towards a land of bondage, let them refrain from saying what they would not do for liberty. How far I should have been justified in the sight of God and man, it is unnecessary now to speculate upon. It is enough to say that I am able to congratulate myself upon the harmless termination of an affair which threatened, for a time, to be attended with serious results." End quote. Solomon Northup remained active in the cause of anti-slavery for many years but eventually faded out from the spotlight. It is believed he died in 1863. His wife Anne died in 1876. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Bag of Bones. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next week then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougere, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougere.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.